Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alpine Intel's Savvy Adjuster podcast, where we discuss the property loss topics important to adjusters with the experts who know them best. I'm your host, Chris Nichols, a senior account manager here on Alpine Intel's sales team. So as you may already know, Alpine Intel is an industry leader in property assessments and innovation across a, a broad uh, range of topics and including our operating brands, HVACI, Strike Check, National Fire Experts, Donut Engineering and the Component Testing Laboratory. You can always find more information about those services uh, and additional resources at our website, which is alpineintel.com. And it's also gonna be linked in the show notes. Uh, as always, we're here to share some key points with insurance professionals about a variety of property topics, including today's focus, which is plumbing losses and subrogation opportunities. So a quick disclaimer before we get started. Uh, we, we typically talk today in general engineering and insurance insurance terms, obviously each property failure comes with its own set of circumstances, which is why it's so important to get an assessment to make sure you have the facts for your claims. Uh, today, I am very excited to be joined by professional engineer and master plumber, Adrian France, uh, along with Alpine Intel's chief operations officer, David Riggs. Welcome to you both. Welcome, thanks for having us. Thank you, Chris. All right, well, Adrian, let's start with you now. You work in Alpine Intel's component testing laboratory inspecting failed plumbing products. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with these products? Oh, well, thank you, Chris. Uh, yes, my name is Adrian France. I am a licensed professional engineer with over 23 years of engineering experience. Some of my previous experience prior included working in the utility and sump pump industries. Uh, I'm also a, a ma licensed master plumber, uh, which that's well suited for obviously looking at plumbing components. I've been working in the Donan component testing laboratory for over 14 years. And uh, my responsibility as a senior forensic engineer is cause failure analysis of uh, water loss appliances and components. Awesome. And David, you're Alpine Intel's chief operations officer now, but you also have a lot of experience with subrogation, including running the component testing lab. Uh, would you mind um, going into your background a little bit as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm actually a mechanical engineer by, by trade. Uh, started in the component testing lab over about uh, 18 years ago. And, you know, running the lab and, and going through that aspect of it actually set us up for uh, a lot of different opportunities uh, and abilities to uh, help our customers achieve what they were trying to do. Um, and where that comes into play is that over the years, there was a lot of different subrogation programs. Um, each company had their own uh, unique way of doing that. Also a lot of uh, national um, law firms that would focus in on property subrogation. Uh, and whenever you would run these these types of programs, you would need uh, partners or you know support. I would say from it, you know people who could handle the logistics of it and also the processing. So there's a whole evidence management aspect of of how do you um, collect, how do you um, make sure that you have proper chain of custody and all these other sorts of things, and then also have uh, the wide range of expertise and special, but have specialization. Uh, in that to be able to look at the different types of projects um, and handle large volumes of them. Uh, so when you would set these programs up, if they would be nationwide, um, you know, we were a, a vendor of theirs that would be able to handle those large volumes uh, and be able to process those. So I worked with 
numerous different insurance companies and law firms, setting up those programs uh, over the years, um, doing things for uh, on, on the plaintiff side and then also on the defense side, whether it's in, in that case, product liability cases. Um, so really, you know, going kind of full circle around what those look like. Uh, but we had a you know really unique opportunity uh, due to our ability to really process high volumes of uh, products and doing inspections uh, and being able to really solve that logistics piece associated with it. So that's a little bit of my background and, and how I got involved with subrogation. Awesome. Well, again, thank you to the both of you who are being here and our listeners uh, are in good hands with the both of you uh, here today. So, uh, David, we'll, we'll stay with you and kind of toss the first question over to you. So, when I started uh, at Alpine Intel about a year ago, I admittedly had zero clue as to what subrogation was. So after some pretty exhaustive uh, and intense Googling, uh, I, I finally found an answer, uh, probably a lot of answers on what subrogation was. Uh, so for the people who are listening today that may be in the same boat that I was, uh, can you explain exactly what subrogation is? Yeah, so now uh, tailor it solely to really property insurance. Um, so when you, in the world of property insurance, uh, you know, for covered losses, uh, something that is a covered peril and a loss, the insurance company has um, a certain amount of exposure associated with that. So the severity of that claim, if, if there's another party that's responsible for uh, that, that failure or that loss, uh, then the responsible party can be tried, uh, held accountable for that and try to, the insurance company can try to recoup the money that they paid out for that loss. And so that's a very basic general term of it. But really, again, to kind of recap, there's a responsible party for whatever the loss might be. Um, that party can be held accountable for that. And so that's the overall subrogation uh, process. Awesome. Uh, is, is there a certain percentage of claims that go to subrogation or uh, do you have those numbers or anecdotally, um, you know, just kind of curious how, how many do pursue subrogation? Uh, it's a very small number, uh, okay. to be honest. The If you talk to most, depending on which department you're talking to at an insurance company, a lot of people don't like subrogation uh, because they kind of view it as, as a lot of added work necessarily. And not only that, but it's it's added work with there's a certain level of you know, uncertainty associated with it, right? So it's like, hey, if I do all this work, we might get some money back on this or, or we might be able to get this. And so that's where a lot of questions really come into play uh, that we receive is, is people trying to figure out, you know, is this worth my time? Should I, should I be doing this sort of thing uh, and that sort of thing? And so there's a lot of this uncertainty and a lot of it really comes into and now all insurance or insurance companies can be structured different ways, but a lot of them will have your your field adjusters, your desk adjusters. A lot of them are tasked with the responsibility of identifying, hey, there is a segregation opportunity here. And a lot of people do that in different ways. There can be different what they call trigger points for that, whether it's, you know, it's something uh, of concern like SIU might get involved or it's getting to a certain uh, threshold for severity uh, or the cost of the claim. Uh, or it could just be that, hey, you know, you know, based on other certain factors, it can you know, pose that we want to investigate this and there might be a segregation opportunity. But these frontline folks of the field adjusters or desk adjusters or whatever it might be, their primary focus is the insurer, right? It, as it should be. They're like the insured has a has a failure. We want to focus on trying to get them back to normal as quickly as possible. You know, what we're talking about today is really water losses. And so 
their their home is or their house is flooded and and they want to be able to you know get that back to normal as quickly as possible and what are the costs and the repairs and all that sort of thing to get that get that moving through um subrogation is usually a you know a ladder of thought it doesn't necessarily come uh, right away and they don't do it all the time uh, and then you have another department maybe uh if they have an in-house subrogation department uh those professionals they focus on subrogation all the time um but there's usually a challenge between the two departments uh to make sure that information is exchanged in an appropriate way um and that you know they have the knowledge uh of what they should be uh, going after or, or pursuing with an investigation or at least um, you know seeing if there's anything uh, what's the cause of failure associated with that uh, and making sure that the two groups are aligned with, with sure. what they're trying to do and, and you use the example of somebody's house flooding is it primarily residential um, claims that pursue or do we do we see a decent amount of commercial um, claims come through subrogation so there's both the when you look at just the frequency of failure uh there's more houses right so there's more houses sure. there's more failures associated with residential properties than there's commercial properties um and so for that reason the vast majority of, of um, you know failures associated with this from a frequency standpoint um will be associated with a residential property now when you're talking about pursuing or people having an interest in looking at subrogation, um, a lot of times commercial gets focused on just due to the severity. And so, you know, you can have, if you have um, a commercial uh, establishment that has a loss or something like that, they might have a you know, loss of revenue and various other things that come into play that, you know, drastically increases the, the cost of the claim. So, sure. yeah. Awesome. Well, looking back, David, I should have just called you directly when, when trying to find out what subrogation is. I'm going to definitely pass it along to, to future coworkers. Just connect with David. He's got a great explanation for, for you. So, um, so Adrian, uh, we'll hop over to you for the next question. So when you receive a product into test at the lab, um, is it always possible to tell what happened based on the evidence that you, that you receive? Uh, you know, that's, that's a, that's a good question, Chris. That's, that's a, that's a double fold one. So uh, really, you know, if we keep in mind, uh, really my role as uh, being an expert is to be third party, completely independent. Uh, I deliver my opinion associated with the cause failure analysis. Not only do I delve into the facts, um, but then I also need to use my past experiences in order to be, really be able to render an opinion about, about the evidence that I'm looking at. And uh, and I'll tell you, we we get a varied a varied um, types of projects associated with water loss and fire loss here at the CTL, and, and this industry by no means is it small. I mean, it's a fifteen billion dollar uh, industry per year, so you can imagine uh, the plethora of different types of uh, water loss projects that we might see. Uh, for the most part. During my first phase, uh, when I'm looking at the evidence and it first comes into my facility, I'm going to be looking for the, the three most common, which is a manufacturer's defect, an installation error, or abuse. Uh, but by no means does that necessarily uh, pigeonhole me only to those kinds of uh, results. There's always 
uh, you know, the potential for maybe I need destructive testing. Maybe I can't determine it during the non-destructive phase. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, especially today when here in uh, sunny Louisville, but our high today, I think, is probably going to be in the teens. You also have to worry about those uh, things like freezing. Freezing is a very, very large one, and I give it I give it probably another month from now. Once we start getting to the spring, we're going to get a, a large amount here at the lab associated with freezing failures. And that's always a good one to really, you know, part of my job, too, is training adjusters. And when you can when you can show them with reports or you can talk to them on the phone and then you can start to teach them just like just like what David was talking about before, there is some uncertainty initially. But then as we start to grow in our relationship with each other, then you start to recognize those things like freezing failures. And to be honest with you, if I didn't if I didn't get any freezing failures in, but then I was because of that, I was able to, you know, help the adjuster, train the adjuster. When do we see freezing failures? Uh, you know, that'd be great. It'd be a win win. And that's really what all this is about is, you know, trying to be a third party person and just let people know, hey, really, what what happened here? And then and then also, I, I don't want to let this uh, not be said, too, is quite often, too, there's also the combination of uh, every single result that I just gave you. A lot of times, and probably the vast majority of the time, it, it is typically maybe that one uh, type of failure. A good example is manufacturing defects where you have an assembly line. Uh, you, know, you know, quite often they don't make uh, one mistake one time. Sometimes they make the mistake over and over and over and over again. And that's that's the part about the lab where we typically do see um, we see similarities and, and then we're able to evaluate them. But but you also have the combination of which you really have to keep your uh, eyes for. And, and sometimes it's various things working together uh, that then does indeed result with the water loss, which which can be unfortunate. And then one of the key one of the key things really to in order to dive down into some of these failures, uh, don't get me wrong, some of them are simple. Some of them, I, I, I probably could get them with a couple of photographs, right? I mean, they can be extremely easy. Others, yeah, sometimes they're a pickle. Man, they can be tough. They can pull out all kind of tools that you then need to have. And that's the nice part about having the lab is the CTL really does have those kind of tools in order to be delved deep into some of these kind of failures. We have an x-ray machine, which is great. Uh, vast majority of the time it's used for uh, fire loss items when you get your, your big glob of plastic. And then you might ask yourself, what in the world is this big old glob? X-ray machine's great. You pop it in there. X-ray machine gives you everything that's metal that's going to shine on through. Obviously, you hope that some of the stuff is, is maybe in its still location. If it's moved a lot, then it can become more difficult. Uh, but that's one of the nice things about having the X-ray machine, and it's very, very useful here. Uh, we have a scanning electron microscope, uh, SEM for short, and it has a EDS package on it, which is an energy dispersive X-ray spectroscopy. Uh, both of these tools are great and be able to really look to a microscopic scale. I mean, you can get up to 30,000 mag 
uh, if you have the right kind of metal component that you're putting in the SEM. With plastic components, you know, maybe we're talking 1,000 mag, 1,500 mag. I mean, you're talking really powerful piece of equipment that's able to really delve down into the materials. When you're looking for material deficiencies, when you're looking for fracture surfaces, how do I analyze this fracture surface to figure out not only which way was the fracture going, but at what rate? Was it going fast? Was it going slow? Those are the tools that you really can use. And then with the EDS, you'll be able to know, hey, did they did they use the right formula when they were actually putting maybe these brass components together? Uh, and that's a good example where EDS is a powerful tool and helps us out tremendously. We have a lot of other tools that we indeed do use. Uh, pressure tester uh, is a very common one. The first the first thing everybody always wonders is, hey, is this failure associated with overpressurization? And absolutely, that's an important, important factor. Uh, and the pressure tester, don't get me wrong, it's not the most beautiful thing on the planet, but I, I wouldn't trade it for anything that I can speak of because I've used it so many times. And I'll tell you what, a wonderful, wonderful tool. I really appreciate it. We also recreate freezing. Uh, we can even do, and this is amazing, we don't have to wait for days like January, like today, in order to recreate freezing. We have freezing testers that we can use in July and August, thank goodness, uh, when the weather gets a little bit warmer. And that way we just don't have to, you know, put them out the door in order to freeze stuff. Um, but we also got stereo microscopes. That's a very, very common tool that we use. Uh, and we, we have a lot of polishers, a lot of mounters, ultrasonic cleaners. I mean, there's just a lot of really good tools uh, that we use with our day-to-day -day analysis in order to, um, you know, figure out what's going on here. What's what's the problem and and, and why did it happen? Sure. Well, I, I think I need to book a flight to, to Louisville and, and, and check this lab out. It sounds like uh, you do have a lot of very cool and very uh, important and valuable tools uh, for really any situation. Um, you, uh, to go back to something you had said about non-destructive versus destructive testing, um, Again, anecdotally, but it, are most able to be looked at in a non-destructive way, or do you get a certain percent that you just go, "Hey, we've we've got to kind of take this thing apart, or we've got to do some destructive testing uh, at this point"? Is there kind of a split between non-destructive and destructive? Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up, Chris, because actually, I remember when David did that research. Was it like eighteen, seventeen? I can't remember. It's been a while. It's been a while. It was about six or seven years ago. Uh, and David, you help me out here if I'm getting it wrong. But I think it was the vast majority is uh, is you determine it during the non-destructive phase. Mm -hmm. And really, was it something like 20, 25 percent? I don't know the exact number. You know a lot better than I do. Yeah, it, it was you know around 20 percent, plus or minus probably 5 percent might need some additional uh, destructive testing. And really, a lot of that depends on the type of product. Um, you know, some products, uh, depending on the, their nature and, and where the failure mechanism occurs um, really deems that, you know, we might have to open something up or do something that might be, you know, deemed destructive. Uh, and so we want all parties there uh, to make sure that we don't have any kind of, uh, you know, spoliation issues or anything like that, or at least give everybody the opportunity to witness what's going on. Um, so, but again, that, that could, you know, vary from, from one to the next. Sure. I still can't get the image of the plastic blob in the x-ray machine out of my head. I'm going to be thinking about that for, for a long time. So, um, well, David, we'll stick with you here uh, for our next question. Can you speak a little bit to what steps an adjuster can take to ensure that evidence doesn't get compromised and really why that matters so much in subrogation? Yeah, no, absolutely. The 
you know, if you, you think about kind of the, the life cycle um, of a plumbing failure, we'll, we'll say, is that, you know, if you, when the insured notices that there's, you know, water all over the place and they're like, hey, I need to get something done here, you know, usually the first person asks for restoration or water mitigation company. Uh, so they're going to come, make sure the water's shut off, make sure they want to start drying out the property. Um, and then at some point, somebody's going to come in, make sure that they remove out, you know, everything that's wet. They could be carpet, they could be insulation, they could be cutting drywall out, um, you know, up the wall to a certain point, removing baseboards and, you know, really kind of trying to get all the, the moisture levels back down to, um, you know, industry standards of where they want to get it. You know, during that time, a lot of insurance uh, professionals won't go out uh, to the scene uh, until it's dry. You know, they, they kind of want to see what, what's the end state, how much repair work do we need to do, and all that sort of thing. And that can vary based off of the company or the size of a loss. But that time frame between the two without anybody really taking interest into the actual failure of the uh, or the issue at hand, whether that's a product failure or just, you know, somebody leaving something on or a maintenance issue or whatever it might be, um, you know, leaves room for some error. So, you know, a restoration company might come in and say, hey, this is this part's bad. We need to cut that out, put a new part in. And, and so the evidence could get lost, uh, could get, you know, thrown away or discarded or whatever else it might be. And so um, it, it's really critical to make sure that, you know, all parties um, that are on site and working uh, know that, hey, any kind of uh, failed components or anything like that, we want to make sure that they don't get altered or changed or modified in any which way and that we can collect that. Um, and so there, with that, if it's something small, you know, we basically want to have proper chain of custody so that you know exactly where it goes from and, and, and how it, um, gets transported from one location to another. Um, you know, you can use traceable means, uh, you know, as long as you use shipping that has tracking numbers and things like that. So small packages are relatively easy. Um, and you know, the lab tries to help out with that. We have, you know, services that will or coordinate that uh, and handle all that for you. But the more difficult ones are the larger items. Uh, you know, if you have a water heater or a washing machine or, or dishwasher, which are all very common failures or common products that we get, is that, you know, how do you how do you pick that up? You know, a lot of people want to ship, ship it uh, via, um, you know, a freight carrier, but, you know, most people don't have loading docks in their front door. Uh, and so how do, you, how do you package that? How do you get it there and all that sort of thing? And I would say, you know, having done it for a really long time, there's not many transportation or not many, there's none. Uh, there, there's no transportation vendors out there um, that are well equipped uh, to be able to handle evidence. Uh, so they don't know, you know, what's, what's the criteria of this and what's the safeguards that we have to have in place. And not only do they know that at a macro level, like the organization, they also have to know that on each individual level. Because if I have just a warehouse uh, personnel that's out there and they're trying to strap something to a skid or they're trying to, you know, just move something, they view it as this is a broken piece of whatever. Um, and they don't know the care and the handling that you have to, to go through to make sure that that's the case. And so what we ended up doing was we created our own logistics company. Uh, so we call it Lost Logistics. Uh, it's actually a team of uh, mostly W-2 personnel. Uh, so we have W-2 drivers that go across all over the country uh, collecting evidence. And that is their sole job is just to handle evidence. Uh, and so we're able to, 
you know, do this at a very high level. Uh, not only does are they professionals in that, but I would say we handle more evidence than anybody else. Um, and, and because of that, they have a, a high volume and know how to handle uh, various types of uh, product failures or evidence failures or whatever that is from large to small. I mean, we've moved, you know, vehicles and bicycles and washing machines and dishwashers and, you know, just the common nature of knowing how to look at something a certain way to make sure that it doesn't get altered or changed uh, is unique. You know, it, it's learning from experience or seeing, you know, learning from other people's experiences. Um, you know, so simple things like when, when we move dishwashers, we make sure that they're on their on their backs versus, you know, making sure that they're not, um, you know, in another orientation because it's just more stable that way. Um, and so there's a lot of different things that we can do uh, to try to move that through. So, you know, as, as you notice that you go through the life cycle, that, that product has to get collected, preserved. That's step number one. Then it comes in the lab. We make sure that we track everything that comes through. We do uh, failure analysis on that in the lab. Um, you know, that is what uh, component testing lab does is failure analysis. We don't we don't pursue segregation. We don't have a, um, you know, we don't get, um, you know, any kind of anything one way or another. We just uh, make sure that we can collect the evidence, make sure that that gets preserved, make sure that we uh, give an unbiased evaluation of what that failure mode is and then and proceed on from there. Uh, so we would then, you know, do the investigation, write the report um, and then send that on. Our, our customers can then use that evaluation uh, to see what they want to do uh, with with their case, whether they want to continue to pursue it, uh, which might result in a destructive exam or might result in a joint study with the other parties um, and or evidence storage or uh, shipping the evidence to another location. Uh, beyond that, if it, if it continues to go, the other thing we have is that the lab is all full of professional engineers. Um, and they all have their own specialties in the different types of areas. And so if you have a loss that goes to litigation or, or um, just goes down that path a little bit and you have depositions or trial or whatever else, um, we're equipped to be able to support you with that. Uh, and so a lot of our experts have been through uh, trials and depositions and all that sort of experience. Uh, and so we're there to be able to support them in that uh, effort as well, if that's what uh, they deem is needed. Sure. And I would imagine if something goes to litigation, uh, it is, is certainly a good thing to be able to prove that chain of custody and that from point A to point B, it went undisruptive and, and one person handled it and it wasn't, you know, handed off to this carrier and then this carrier. So I'm sure I'm sure that's a pretty handy in litigation as well. Oh, it, it's absolutely table stakes. And, you know, when people ask about it, it's not only that, but like we have, um, you know, we scan everything as it moves. And so not only do we know who takes it, but we know the exact time and date and everything else can provide a complete log from beginning to end. Uh, and so it's it's um, quite exhaustive. You know, we've been doing this for, um, you know, over 18 years, um, this exact thing. And so uh, we have definitely refined the process over the years. Sure. Uh, so I know today's episode is kind of focused more on, on plumbing losses, water losses, but um, how would subrogation on a water loss differ from other subrogation, such as, uh, say, a fire loss? Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, I'll take that one. The, there's a lot of different, um, I'll, I'll first talk about maybe a fire loss. Uh, so a fire loss, you often have a, a scene investigation tied up into it because you have to determine where the origin of the loss is. 
Uh, and then so kind of once you have the origin, you kind of say, hey, okay, well, you know, what are the potential ignition sources uh, in that area of origin? Uh, and then we want to see, you know, what, what are kind of some possibility of causation there. Uh, and when you have that, so you have a scene investigation tied up into it, you know. Um, and then the other thing you have is what makes fire losses more challenging is that the evidence can be consumed in the fire. Uh, and so there's a, a lot of aspects associated with that. What makes it easier or, or why people tend to pursue segregation a lot on fire losses is because, for one of the reasons they might get investigated, is just because of the severity of the claim. So an average fire loss might be, it is about seventy dollars to $80,000. Uh, the average severity of a interior water loss is about $12,000, you know, $10,000 to $12,000. And so if I'm looking at just the economics of the claim on a ten dollars to $12,000 water loss, you know, I don't want to spend enormous amounts of money investigating anything, you know, pursuing any type of uh, segregation case, you know, I might have legal fees, I've got processing fees and all this other and just time associated with things. Uh, and so what's my return on that investment uh, if I'm, a, you know, in the eyes of a segregation professional. And then on, on the flip side of a fire investigation, if it's $70,000, well, you know, I, I can maybe make a case financially that uh, we want to spend some money to kind of pursue this and, and check it out. Um, now, the frequency of fire losses is much lower than the frequency of water losses, though. And so, yes, you have higher severity. Uh, water losses have lower severity. Uh, the frequency of water losses is much higher um, than the frequency of fire losses. And so what most people don't know is that be next to um, storm damage, um, you know, hail and, and wind, uh, the next category uh, for frequency of property damage is associated with interior water loss. And so what's unique about that is that or the luxuries, I guess I could say, about interior water loss relative to fire losses is that, I always say, the origin of the loss is known. It's where the water's breaking out, right? And the other thing that you can do that makes it easier is that I can usually remove that evidence and collect it without occurring where the leak occurred. Uh, we can ship that, transport it to the lab. They can recreate the failure, confirm that we have the right pieces of evidence, and then um, complete failure analysis associated with that. And so that ability to logistically transport, uh, the ability to uh, confirm that with uh, and do the failure analysis in a single location allows for a few different things. One, it allows for centralization of uh, knowledge with our experts in our, uh, that we have um, in the field. You know, these guys that are in the lab, they will look at hundreds of failures every year. Uh, as that goes through. And so they are a true failure experts on these products and how they fail and all the little nuances associated with those. I mean, they will see things that, oh, well, if you have this, you know, you this that causes about this. And it's just, it's a certain feature or characteristic, small little like the, the stiffness of a product or, you know, how it may be discolored or anything like that. And they, they know all these things and, and what happens to all that. Whereas if you're to use say a local vendor that's kind of an engineer that's a jack of all trades they you know that's your guy you send out whenever you have any kind of product investigator investigation at home or something like that might be the first time that they look at something um and so for them to really kind of understand that they might have to spend hours and hours and hours trying to figure out what it is whereas while we'll spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours looking at multiple different product builders 
Um, and so we can spend that time and that research and that investigation uh, for that specific product failure and then apply it to numerous uh, failures that come through. Um, and so that's that's one of the benefits of water losses and you can just do it more economically. And because you can do it more economically, it also allows you to create uh, what I mentioned before is programs around that. And so carriers for them to be um, a lot of times what they found was, hey, if we're going to pursue these, we kind of need to group these together um, so that we can uh, pursue them and it makes it worth our while kind of going after them. And so there was we were kind of the the expert and the vendor that supported their logistics on these mass tort cases. Uh, so various carriers had mass tort cases and mass tort cases like a grouping of product of the same product that all failed exactly the same way uh, and you put those together. And so we were able to support that um, the um, forensic analysis of that and then also all the logistics associated with that um, and really kind of give some insight into how they should necessarily go about that um, and more so from the product uh, characteristics. So, you know, when we would look at that, we would look at, okay, why did this thing fail? Was it a one-off type failure or is it something that was more related to an overall design or manufacturing issue, which would, as Adrian was talking about, repeat itself multiple times on multiple different products. And then we would look at, well, is that something that's within, um, that the manufacturer has identified and, and already remediated and, and therefore the, frequency of those failures is going to be going down, right? So they're replacing those products in the marketplace as, as they continue to phase themselves out, or is it something that's new, a new product that's out there and it's going to continue to go. And so uh, we, we would communicate those aspects to our uh, customers. And then in that fashion, uh, that would equip them to make the decisions that they wanted to do. You know, how would we, how would they um, devote their efforts into what they were trying to, to do and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, one way or another. Uh, on the flip side, from the uh, defense side of things, we would work for various manufacturers and we would see such a high volume of things coming in, uh, we would be able to help them figure out, you know, do you have warranty claims uh, that are coming through that could end up in product liability claims? You know, a lot of warranty claims might only happen in the first year or two or certain things like that. And so, but they still have liability for several years beyond that. And so, we would help them try to figure out, you know, what's the extent of this and what's going on. Um, and then it, it was kind of like a reverse or another you know, version of subrogation, I guess, is that manufacturer would hire us and then they would then take that information and try to renegotiate their contract with their vendors and say, hey, we, we need you to do this because, um, you know, th this is what we're seeing on a massive scale. And you would see that those same vendors, they, they would not only apply to just one component, but you, unlike appliances, it's the same vendors that service all the different manufacturers. And so, you know, you'd have one issue here that would hit one brand uh, or, or one supplier would have an issue and it could hit, you know, three or four different manufacturers of appliances. And so we would be able to have that visibility that other people wouldn't. Each manufacturer looks at their own product, uh, whereas the lab would look at all the products uh, and be able to be that common denominator uh, across the board. Sure, and you made a great point too with uh, us being around for 18 plus years, right? We've got a massive database of information and past inspections to refer to, to be more efficient in, in our in our investigations and, and, and things like that. So no, that's, that's, that's great. Um, 
Adrian, uh, back to you. I, I kind of want to dive into um, your day, uh, you know, in, in the lab, um, things you see and, and just kind of, um, I guess to, to ask the first question, what are some plumbing conditions that are commonly seen at the lab? Well, Chris, so we see, uh, I typically work, I'm a mechanical engineer, so I work a lot with the water loss uh, side of items. And we'll see a lot of things like water supply lines, uh, dishwashers, water heaters. Uh, we see a lot of appliances, water filters, faucets, as you can imagine, all of those basically items in a residence. We also do commercial, don't get me wrong. Um, but really, when you think of the bulk of it, it's it's a lot of items in a residence setting that, that basically has anything to do with water. Uh, and I'm going to piggyback off of some of the, the stuff that David was talking about. So if you if you think of all of these items, not the one offs, but if you think of the items that we were seeing uh, rep repetitiously, you know, over and over again, I like to think of it as an upside down bathtub curve. So as you can imagine, the item, it starts off, maybe the volume is slightly slow, but then for whatever reason, let's say it's it's maybe a time factor or a in contact with a something kind of factor. But then in the lab here, then it just starts to take off. And, you know, at that point, we saw, we see an increase in volume. And that's when we start realizing, OK, there's there's definitely something going on here. And uh, and and that's when all the research happens. And that's you know, that's the part about this job. I really enjoy myself, too, is is not. There is some repetition, but there's also there's a lot of new stuff that I'm learning whenever these new items and products come in. And then eventually you get to a point where maybe it plateaus and you're still getting volume associated with it. But it but it's really just hit the maximum amount that you're going to get associated with these products. A good example would be uh, uh, toilet supply risers. Uh, the part, the valve that sticks out outside of your wall in your home, you have a, a water supply line that threads then into uh, that valve. It comes up and then it connects to your toilet underneath the toilet tank. Uh, that one for a long time, if we go with that bathtub curve I was just talking about, that one's actually, it's on the slope going down. And what happened was, and it, and it was very interesting, it's not like there was uh, necessarily one manufacturer that was having an issue. It was it was basically a lot of potentially, you know, maybe these manufacturers were copying each other. Uh, I mean, trying to think of exactly what they were going through, I don't know, but I can tell you what the end result was. And it was basically the industry as a whole, uh, basically learning how to make these components and make these components cor uh, correctly. And, you know, that's a part of, uh, us here really helping the whole industry move forward. We're kind of, you know, we're the checks and balances here. Uh, we're here to make sure that, you know, not only manufacturers do well, not only installers do it well, but really, you know, what, what's what's going on with the industry. Now that one itself, uh, currently, it's really going down on the bottom of that bathtub curve and we don't necessarily see nearly as much volume associated with it. Um, but just like anything, in life today, there's always, uh, you know, the next component down the road that that'll pop up. And and then I get to learn something else about the plumbing industry, which I tell you, it, it sometimes it can surprise you. It's it's definitely uh, like a box of chocolates. <laughs> well, and I know you, <laughs> I know you uh, touched on it earlier, kind of in your introduction at the beginning of the uh, the podcast. But 
Uh, you talked about uh, the most common causes of loss, right, to the components. Can you speak to that? And, and kind of, you know, I don't want to call it a top five by any means. Don't limit yourself uh, if it's seven or if it's three, but, you know, wear and tear, or weather related. Can you kind of speak to some common causes uh, of loss to these components? Well, really, if we're thinking of just the non-destructive, which is our, our largest volume, the, the three things that um, that typically they want results on is, is it is there a manufacturing defect here? Is there an installation here? Or is there abuse? Those, those three right there, that's the probably the vast majority of, of when I'm writing a report that, and, and you know, this evidence, it is what it is, right? At the end of the day, uh, it basically speaks for itself. Uh, and the report, I, I try obviously my best and to, and to make it in a very intelligible, flowing manner that then has, you know, proper support proper documentation. When someone comes along, you know, six months later, well, a year later, uh, so, sometimes if I had, David probably knows more about this than I do, but if I had to take a guess, my guess would be litigation processes. Uh, typically it's about, if you get a complicated one, it could be about two years. And obviously when you're going out through this process that, that can easily take two years long, you want to, you want to make sure you got the right kind of documentation. Uh, and David hit on that, too, when he was talking about um, the lost logistics, the picking up the evidence, uh, those things like chain of custody, uh, a description of the evidence, uh, that kind of stuff. When it when it comes down the road and it won't be immediate, trust me, it takes a little while for it to become important. But when you're down the road and you're in litigation, those things do become important. And that's why it's nice to be able to, you know, when you're initially picking up the evidence, when you're initially doing the documentation, Dot your I's and cross your T's and get it done then, and then you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll add one other thing associated with that, and it, it's really kind of because it's in maybe an internal thing that uh, of of what people mean by abuse. Um, and so a lot of times we'll kind of say abuse, uh, but that's a pretty big bucket that we throw in. It's it's really any kind of external forces uh, associated with that. You know, outside of um, we'll say an installation issue. Uh, but it's, you know, that could be anything from chemicals applied to it to, you know, physical abuse or freezing or, you know, various other things that can, um, you know, impact that. And, and so it's, that's, you know, a little bit more, I guess, detail on you know, what we mean by abuse. Um, so. Sure. Well, um, a, a final question for the both of you, if you have an example, but I it was just kind of thinking about this is, um, 18 plus years of experience, right, at the component testing lab. There's got to be a handful of unique situations, I, I should say, or, or dare I say, I, I don't want to call it humorous by any means, but just one that you kind of still remember to this day of, of something coming coming through that you had an inspection on and you thought, well, that is that is certainly out of the norm. Uh, Adrian, do you have any that, that kind of come to mind um, over your years of experience? <clears throat> Well, I can tell you, I've definitely, I've had some challenging ones. There's no doubt about that. Uh, there's ones that uh, you're really, you're really spending your time, you know, hitting the books, hitting the, hitting the destructive study, the destructive tests, and I really figure that one out. But as far as some entertaining ones, I mean, everybody, everybody always loves the ones about sewage. Uh, so at a time, this hits a, a good organization, which I support and I always appreciate, and that's the CPSC. Consumer Product Safety Commission, and those guys, they really, you know, they kind of try to keep a track. They're the, you know, all very similar checks and balances. And when 
when they had a toilet manufacturer that had issues associated with a pressurized tank inside of the toilet that they they just didn't quite get quite right as you can imagine just the 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 thoughts that go through my head obviously i'm hoping i'm not in that bathroom when it happens but exploding toilets i think is always very very eye-opening whenever whenever you see something like that sure david how about how about you <laughs> so you know adrian you just made me think of something that i i found somewhat humorous so i was i was working on a, a case in which there was a carbon monoxide case and uh, so we had a joint study uh, with the manufacturer. And since it was carbon monoxide, it was a, there was a safety issue. So Consumer Product Safety Commission um, and the attorney that we were working for notified the Consumer Product Safety Commission that we were having this inspection, this joint inspection. So we go to have the joint inspection and this guy randomly shows up at the front door and he flashes a badge. He's like, I'm with the Consumer Product Safety Commission. I'm going to come in and witness your inspection like he was with the FBI or, you know, something like that, like you see in the movies. And I was, and I kind of made me laugh. I'm like, are you for real? And uh, I said, can I see that? <laughs> and I was like, gonna check out his ID and see what I was like, seems legit. I was like, well, maybe let me make a phone call. And I was like, come on, let's go. And uh, and so he was there and he was there throughout the, the whole inspection. And the one thing that, the thing that it made happen is a lot of times the experts, uh, there's experts and attorneys there for, um, the other parties, they were much more vocal during the inspections because they wanted to make sure that they tried to sell their case to the Consumer Product Safety Commission that while they were there, so that there wasn't some bigger, you know, um, investigation that went on to like all their products. Um, but it was it was a unique, um, you know, time and experience that happened. That yeah, the local official from Consumer Product Safety Commission just randomly. Uh, you know, showed up to an inspection. So it was, um, it was, it was interesting, but yeah, he kind of caught me by surprise. I was like, yeah, uh, checking it, but they have official badges and, and IDs and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and please, please tell me he was in a, a long trench coat with a thick mustache and aviator sunglasses. Yeah, aviator I mean, that's, glasses. that's what I'm picturing. Uh, I don't think he had aviator glasses on. He might have had a mustache, but okay. he, he was. He was wearing like, you know, the black suit and all that. It was uh sure. it was <laughs> Well, awesome information today, guys. And obviously a big thanks again to the both of you for being here and shining some light on what subrogation, uh, subrogation entails and how plumbing failures are handled with respect to that. And thanks to everyone listening today. Uh, just make sure to be look, uh, looking out for our next mini episode where we're going to actually dive into more detail about the product inspection process from start to finish. And also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And of course, if you have any property claims that need assessments, head on over to our website, alpineintel.com to submit an assignment or get more details about how our suite of services can bring you the answers you need to feel confident about your settlement decisions. You'll also find additional information and resources in our show notes. Thanks again for joining today and we'll see you next time. <music>